0: Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. The Supreme Court will hear oral argument on Wednesday in a case called Moore versus Harper. J. Michael Ludig, a retired federal judge who was on the shortlist for a Supreme Court appointment in the George W. Bush administration, has called the case the most important case for American democracy in U.S. history. Eric Holder, who served as attorney general in the Obama administration, has warned that the case should keep every American up at night. Moore versus Harper began its life as a lawsuit alleging partisan gerrymandering by North Carolina's Republican-controlled legislature. But as it comes to the Supreme Court, the case involves something known as the independent state legislature theory, the idea that the Constitution gives state legislatures near complete power to regulate federal elections without interference from state courts. Joining us today to discuss the case is election law expert, Richard Hassan. He's a professor of law at UCLA and the director of UCLA Law's Safeguarding Democracy Project. Professor Hasson, thanks so much for joining us. It's
1: great to be with you.
0: So let's start at the beginning. Um, if you could just tell us about Moore versus Harper, how did it get there?
1: Yeah, I think actually we'd wanna go back to a case before Moore versus Harper, one called Rucho versus Common Cause. That's a case where the United States Supreme Court in 2019 said that Common Cause couldn't sue the state of North Carolina for drawing its district lines in a way that favored the Republican party over the Democratic party in a kind of extreme way. North Carolina is a 50-50 Democratic Republican state or a swing state, but most of the districts were drawn to help Republicans and so Common Cause went to the Supreme Court and said, we think that under the U.S. Constitution, partisan gerrymandering should be reigned in uh, under the Equal Protection Clause or the First Amendment. It's it's not fair to have these districts drawn this way. The Supreme Court, in an opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, said, no, uh, the federal courts are closed to this kind of argument. It's what the lawyers call a non-justiciable political question, something the courts won't hear. And you'll have to try something else, like going to state courts or passing a voter initiative in those places that have them or or something else. And the something else turned out to be uh, the common cause tried in state court, and they were more successful in state court and uh, got a ruling in the Moore versus Harper case that the new uh, lines for congressional districts that were drawn after the 2020 census violate a provision of the state constitution that is the north carolina constitution guaranteeing free and fair elections and so the the backdrop of the case is a ruling by a state supreme court that a congressional districting plan put in by the the state legislature called the general assembly in north carolina that that plan violated the state constitution and now um, the republican legislators who who drew the lines are saying it violates the u.s constitution for a state court applying the state constitution to limit what a state legislature does in federal elections,
0: and that is the independent state legislature theory in a nutshell.
1: So yeah, let's talk about you know where does it come from? Yeah, in the Constitution, in Article One, Section Four, in the so-called elections clause, it says that uh, states get to set the rules through their legislatures for conducting congressional elections, subject to congressional override. And Congress sometimes steps in and override. So for example, Congress passed a law in 1993 called the National Voter Registration Act or the Motor Voter Law that says every state in federal elections has to do certain things to register voters. But when Congress doesn't speak, then it's up to the states. And the independent state legislature theory is it's not just up to the states, but because the legislatures are mentioned in this part of the Constitution. It's up to state legislatures. They kind of have free-floating authority. Normally when a state legislature acts, it passes a law. That law is generally subject to a gubernatorial veto. Turns out in North Carolina, that's not true for redistricting plans, but it's generally true in North Carolina. It's also subject to review in state courts under state constitution. Just like Congress can't pass a law that violates the US Constitution, the North Carolina General Assembly can't pass a uh, law that violates either the state or the federal constitution. And uh, the claim here is, well, that rule doesn't apply when the legislature is passing or regulating, uh, passing the rules or regulating congressional elections. There, the legislature is independent, independent of the rest of the state uh, bodies that normally uh, deal with uh, whether or not legislation passed by the legislature is okay.
0: When and how did the Supreme Court first float or address this theory?
1: So these kinds of arguments have been around for a long time. We can go back to the 1930s, where a similar argument was made that a state's governor did not have the power to veto a congressional districting plan. This is a case called Smiley versus Home the Supreme Court said, no, that when when it uses legislature in in this place, uh, it must mean the legislature acting within the regular powers that the legislature has. So that seems to go against the theory here. Also in 2015, in a case called Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission versus Arizona legislature, the Supreme Court on a five to four vote held that voters in arizona using the initiative process thereby bypassing the legislature could set up uh, a commission to draw district lines and do so in a way that cuts the legislature out completely chief justice roberts was the author of the dissent in that case for four dissenters and said the legislature has to play at least some role in the process we've got those opinions that seem to go the other way and in rucho as i mentioned at the top the supreme court and also an opinion by chief justice roberts says when it's listing the other ways that partisan gerrymandering could be dealt with he mentioned state courts he mentioned state constitutions what's on the other side We ch- we would go back to the 2000 case of bush versus gore this was the case that ended the disputed presidential election in 2000 between george w bush and al gore in that case The Florida Supreme Court had ordered a recount under certain rules. The majority of the court held in Bush versus Gore that those rules violated equal protection because they they treated different voters unequally. They were arbitrary, the court said. But three justices, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, joined by Justices Scalia and Thomas, issued a concurring opinion. They said, much like the theory being advanced in this case, that the power of the Florida Supreme Court, in that case, was uh, limited. We were talking about a presidential election, so it's not Article I, Section 4, but Article II, which is parallel to, to that Elections Clause. It's the Elector's Clause. It gives state legislatures the power to set the manner for conducting uh, presidential elections. And so Rehnquist advanced this argument that the state court had usurped the power of the state legislature. More recently, we saw these cases come up in the 2020 election. These arguments were raised by Trump and his uh, allies against certain rules. For example, when Pennsylvania's Supreme Court in the middle of COVID decided that because the mails were slow thanks to COVID, people would have three extra days to get their uh, ballots uh, returned through the mail and would be counted. And three justices on the court, Justices alito Thomas and Gorsuch have, in in that case and other case, expressed sympathy with this argument. And Justice Kavanaugh has also expressed some sympathy with the argument, although he hasn't gone quite as far as the others.
0: In recent years in particular, when they're interpreting the Constitution, the justices have sometimes looked at the text and the history and the tradition of a particular provision to try to figure out how people would have understood the provision when it was first adopted. What do the text in history tell us about the independent state legislature theory?
1: Well, I think you're right that this is a really important point, in part because one of the justices who whose vote we, we, we don't have a good idea about is Amy Coney Barrett. Justice Barrett is a believer in originalism and looking at the original public meaning, and the parties debate the historical evidence as to whether or not the evidence shows that um, state courts applying state constitutions, in fact, were limiting the power of state legislatures in the elections context. Um, Both sides try to marshal the historical evidence uh, on their own behalf. I'm not a historian and I have not done the historical research. I think the stronger argument is that when the court used legislature here, it meant the legislature acting in the broader legislative process. And there are some specific examples that are cited. Uh, but there is historical evidence that the uh, legislators point to, in this case, on the other side. And I expect we'll be hearing a lot about that issue during the argument on Wednesday.
0: You've called this theory an 800-pound gorilla. Why? Why did you say that?
1: Well, for two reasons. Uh, first, this would be a profound shift in power from the normal set of state actors who are involved in regulating elections to state legislatures. Um, so being be this power shift. It, it's not a coincidence that these cases are arising in places like North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Both of these are cases that had Republican legislatures, Democratic governors, and Democratic-dominated state Supreme Courts. So, you know, another kind of partisan lens to look through this is, here's the Republican legislature not getting its way. It's being limited in gerrymandering by the state Supreme Court. Now, I should say, it's not only Republicans that get their gerrymandering limited by state Supreme Courts. We had that happen in New York uh, in this redistricting cycle. But uh, here it is, the Republicans complaining about this. And so, uh, you know, the this would shift power to the state legislatures and in, in partisan states that have already gerrymandered, uh, then the, the party in power already has an advantage. And so it seems to stack the deck in that way. It would also further empower the Supreme Court to get involved in elections, because lots of these cases that would have ordinarily been in state court now get into federal court. And ultimately, the arbiter of whether or not there's a federal constitutional violation is the U.S. Supreme Court. The question of whether or not there's a state constitutional violation, we would normally expect that to be left to the uh, state Supreme Court to decide. The other reason that this uh, case uh, is is a big one is because I would say a, a kind of mangled version of the independent state legislature theory was relied upon by Donald Trump and his allies to try to flip the results of the 2020 election. In particular, he went to state legislators in states like Michigan, Arizona, uh, Wisconsin, Georgia. uh, And what he tried to do is convince those state legislatures that they should try to send in an alternative slate of electors, even though Biden had won all of those states. Uh, Trump was trying to argue, there was fraud. There were irregularities. None of that was proven, of course. But he made these arguments. He said that the Constitution empowers you to to do this. And uh, so, one concern about how the independent state legislature theory could go, and, and one that I've addressed, is this idea that it could be used politically to try to argue for something like that. Now, I don't think the court's going to hold in more or another case that states actually have that power. But you can imagine state legislatures trying to use that power in 2024, uh, members of Congress accepting it, and the courts deciding to stay out of the issue because it's a political question. So I think it has the potential to be abused in a way that could be um, paving the way towards election subversion.
0: So you actually filed a friend of the court brief supporting the respondents in this case, Common Cause, the other groups challenging the congressional maps and defending against the independent state legislature theory. What argument are you making in that brief?
1: Well, I should say first, I think this is the first time I've filed a brief since 2005 in the Supreme Court. I I rarely do it. Like you, I like to be a commentator uh, on uh, issues, but this one I thought was so important that I had to weigh in. Essentially, the brief argues that um, there's going to be a flood of new election litigation if the court accepts the theory of, of the legislators in this case. The legislators say that only the state legislature may, quote, regulate federal elections. Only state legislatures can regulate federal elections. Well, it's not just state courts applying state constitutions that would come into play here. It's also the everyday example of state and local election administrators interpreting uh, and filling gaps in statutes passed by state legislatures. So suppose that a state sets up a uh, system to allow people to vote by mail, but the statutes that the legislature rights are incomplete because they don't write down every single subsidiary rule as to how it's supposed to happen. Well, what if there's a fight about whether or not you're allowed to have ballot drop boxes? This was a very controversial issue in the 2020 election, also in in 2022. Are drop boxes allowed or not? And we've had state litigation on that question in places like Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin a few months ago on a 43 vote said, no, the state law doesn't allow that. That's normally a question of state law, and we already have a kind of a litigious society, but it would now become a federal question. That is, every time a state or a local election administrator filled a gap or interpreted a statute in a way that a party disagreed with, they could say, hey, you've usurped the power of the state legislature, you've violated the federal constitution, and now we're in federal court. And I went back and I counted all of the emergency cases, those on the so-called shadow docket, Uh, That the Supreme Court has heard in the last 12 terms related to elections, I found 65 cases, which is a huge number of cases, probably the largest uh, topic of cases aside from death penalty cases that the Supreme Court hears on an emergency basis, including, uh, I think my count was 14 or 15 just in the year 2020. And the amount of election litigation already puts the court in a very delicate position. These cases would put the court in a more delicate position because they'd be deciding things just before or just after an election when the results of the election might turn on it. And so I basically argue, number one, we're going to have an explosion of election litigation. Number two, that's going to cause people to um, lose confidence in the election process because there's going to be all of this additional litigation that's going to cause people to think there are irregularities or problems with how the elections run. And number three, it's going to affect the legitimacy of the courts, because the courts are going to be called upon to side with Democrats or Republicans. And I actually, cites is something that Chief Justice Roberts said in the oral argument in one of the earlier partisan gerrymandering cases. He said the average person on the street is going to look at these cases and think that the court is just ruling for one party or the other. And so it's not good for the election system, it's not good for the judiciary, and it's giving people a second bite at the apple of things that should be left uh, up to states to decide.
0: I remember very well sitting in the courtroom, listening to that exchange that you talked about, and to the extent that you, I didn't already think, okay, we're done here. You thought, thought yes, this is, this is going to be very important to them. What other, are there other friend of the court briefs on either side of the debate that you think are likely to be persuasive to the justices?
1: One of the most important briefs that was filed was filed early on. It was a brief supporting neither party in the case. And it was filed by the Conference of State Supreme Court Justices. Probably few people know there is such a thing, but it's basically a group of the chief justices of the state Supreme Courts. And there are some very conservative justices on that court. It's not, you know, made up of, uh, you know, just justices from the liberal side. And they filed a brief and they, even though it was nominally not a brief supporting either side, it said, don't endorse this theory. State courts have the power to figure out what state law means. And it shouldn't be second guessed by the federal courts. And, you know, pointing out the kind of issues of comity, uh, kind of uh, respect for courts across courts. This is really a slap in the face to state courts what it would do is cause federal courts to have to second guess state courts all the time. So I think that brief is going to be uh, very persuasive. You mentioned at the top that Judge Ludwig filed. uh, He was actually one of the um, attorneys on the brief uh, with the respondents. But there were some amicus briefs that have come in from some notable conservative and Republican figures. Uh, One of the briefs by Ben Ginsberg, who was Um, Mitt Romney and John McCain's uh, chief lawyer during their campaigns. Uh, You've got kind of a wide array of people. And the other briefs that I think are going to be really important are the historian briefs. You asked earlier about uh, text and history. For those justices to whom uh, the originalism question is the key question, uh, these briefs are going to shed the most light on those uh, kinds of issues.
0: What are the different ways that the court could resolve this case? I mean, on the one hand, they could you know, issue a full-throated endorsement of the independent state legislature theory and say the legislature has all of the power. They could you know, issue a full-throated denunciation of the theory. But are there ways in between?
1: Yeah, I think there are some possible ways. I, I don't know that doctrinally they um, Will work for the court, I I don't know, but some have proposed, for example, the court could say well. um, You can decide as a state court issue of procedure, but not an issue of substance, this is uh, something that the uh, legislators try to to push. Uh, Figuring out where that line is is hard to to know or you can interpret a law, but you can't go beyond interpretation and 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 make a new law well you know again. Hard to know where that line is. Uh, Maybe a more plausible one is a state court could decide that a state uh, legislature has violated the state constitution, but it has to remand the case to the state legislature to come up with a remedy. That's kind of what happened, though, in Moore versus Harper. And it was only when the General Assembly did not draw new districts that complied with the state constitution that the state court had to approve district lines under the rules that it had found under the, the state constitution. So there are ways they could try to find a middle ground. I think back to Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in that Arizona independent redistricting case, the one where the Arizona legislature was completely shut out of the process. And I think, you know, that could be a line. Uh, but if that's the line, don't shut the legislature completely out of the process then Common Cause should win in this case because the state legislature got to draw the lines. The lines then got reviewed and they can go back and they can draw lines again for the next round. There's nothing that says you can only have one round of redistricting for the whole decade. They can try again and keep trying to comply. And by the way, since this case uh, was taken by the court, uh, we had elections for the North Carolina Supreme Court and it no longer has a Democratic majority. So if, in fact, the state legislature came up with a new plan, that plan could well be approved by the new majority on the North Carolina Supreme court. I even wondered whether or not the case could be mooted by that, this question. If for example, the state Supreme court decides to abandon its reading of the state constitution before uh, the more cases heard. I think that's unlikely to happen just procedurally, but It's a possibility.
0: Yeah, the clock would be ticking on that one. It is a complicated and important case. So thank you, Professor Hassan, for joining us to break it down.
1: Oh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about it. Thanks so much.
0: That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. If you have questions about the Supreme Court, please send us an email at feedback at scotusblog.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. SCOTUS Talk is produced and edited by Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, James Ramoser, and Katie Barlow.